Hey there, On The Deal fans. Sam Thornton here, owner of DL Sports and host of On The Deal podcast with a quick word before this episode gets underway. What I want you guys to do before this episode begins is to pull out your phone and follow the DL Sports Instagram page with the handle at DLSportsCom. That's at DLSportsCom. The account has a wide range of content, including sports updates, breaking news, podcast snippets, and more. So do me a favor and hit the follow button right now. And if you want to follow some of my own personal content, make sure to hit the follow button on my Twitter handle at Sam C. Thornton. Thanks, guys. And enjoy this episode. On today's episode of On The Deal Podcast, we have NFL storylines from week 16 of the NFL season. Tua Tagovailoa might not be good. The Packers might make a run to the Super Bowl without any receivers. Russell Wilson might have to retire from the league after this weekend. And Nathaniel Hackett is no longer the head coach of the Denver Broncos. The playoff hunt is coming down to the wire, especially in the NFC. We're going to preview the big games for NFL Week 17, and I'll get my best bets for each of those games. Finally, we have college New Year's Bowls coming up this weekend, so I'll give my analysis and best bets for those games as well. There's no interview today, so you're going to get a lot of me, which I'm sure everyone is absolutely thrilled about. But as always, we have much to cover within the hour, so let's not waste any time and get this episode rolling. Welcome to episode number 19 of On The Deal Podcast and to Attack of Iloa. Right off the start, we have to talk about the lead headline of the NFL as we speak here on Wednesday. Before the Dolphins' four-game losing streak, Tua Tagovailoa had the third best odds to win the NFL MVP award at plus 500. After Sunday's loss to the Packers, he now sits at 12,500 odds. It's not even, you can't even put that in a sports book, I don't think. Thanks to one of the worst fourth quarter performances in recent memory. And it's not like I want to start off the show, sit up here on this microphone, and start the segment like this. Because after all, he's one of my all-time favorite athletes, one of my all-time favorite Alabama players, and one of my favorite players currently in the NFL. But I have to call it like I see it. That loss was 100% on Tua Tagovailoa's shoulders on Sunday. Let's just compare the two halves of football that he put together in this game against the Packers. The first half, he was 9 for 12, 229 yards, and an 80-yard strike to Jalen Waddle, his old teammate at Alabama. We know all about him and what he can do. The Dolphins were rolling. It seemed like they were just going to run away with the win after what I said last week, which was, I think, based off their loss to the Buffalo Bills, they found their identity again. They went back to their guns. Tua is finally healthy again. He's out of the concussion protocol. He's back fully engaged with his receivers, back fully engaged with the offensive scheme that Mike McDaniel handed to him. They have found their identity and look like they could win out the rest of the year and become a legitimate threat in the playoffs. Those were my words last week on this show. The complete opposite happened in the second half with a stat line for the ages of 7 for 13 81 yards, and three interceptions back-to-back-to-back, all of which happened in the fourth quarter on Sunday against the Green Bay Packers. That was the first time since 2009 that a Dolphins quarterback threw three interceptions in the fourth quarter. And that man was Chad Henney for those who remember him. Tua, let's be honest here. He was awful. He was terrible. And the pressure has been on him all year long. The, The pressure's been on him since he came into the NFL, if we're being honest here, ever since he was drafted, the pressure of the number five pick that they held, everybody was questioning, is Tua going to be able to do this? Is he going to be able to stay healthy? Is he going to be able to have an offense around him that can lean on him to make plays? And right now, he arguably has the best weapons in football around his offense. Mostert in the backfield has exceeded expectations this year. He's a solid first down yardage guy. Of course, you have Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle, who we could rave on and on about. Two of the best guys to have on the same team in the entire league. They are one of the best one-two punches maybe in NFL history. I've been saying that for a while. You saw it on Sunday and in the Buffalo game. You could just throw a post route over the middle of the field to Jalen Waddle, and if he has more than two yards of separation between the middle linebackers and the safeties, he's going to turn on the burners and he's taking it to the house. And Tyreek Hill, 
he's the same way. He's so fast that when he runs out, when he runs out routes, he has to stop and come back to the ball, no matter who's launching it to him. He was like that way in Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes as well. That's why this is a bad look. It would be a bad look in any sort of instance. Let's just keep it honest here. But if this were a team with receivers like the Baltimore Ravens right now, who until last week hadn't had a wide receiver score a touchdown since week three, the media would cut him some slack. It comes out later, and this is news on Monday, that Tua is back in, in concussion protocol. And the news was confirmed today by the head coach, Mike McDaniels, that he indeed did suffer a concussion. All of it is strange. The news comes out on Monday, an entire day following the game, that he finished another second half of football with a significant head injury. And unfortunately, it's time for me to come up here and say, it's time to shut him down. And as someone who hates to be the softie in the group, this would be the right thing to do. This is not the first time, the second time, but the third time the Dolphins organization has failed to put the interest of the quarterback's health first and foremost over their team's success. And is this the reason he threw three interceptions back-to-back like that in the fourth? I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to pump the brakes on that remark. But remember, he played in week two in the second half against the Bills with a concussion and balled out. Had one of the best performances out of any quarterback throughout the entire season. Then the Bengals episode, which was one of the most horrific looks for the NFL in recent memory. Soon all the roughing the passer calls are being prompted by refs. And then this dagger in the coffin with him playing an entire second half of football against the Packers where he blew it for his team. The right thing to do is to shut him down for the year. And are they going to do it? Probably not. Because that's how this game works, unfortunately. But you can guarantee that the NFL is going to look into it. If not them, it's going to be some other foundation like the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Or another sort of investigation involving player safety. Either way... Let's say the Dolphins end up playing Tua next week and they win out. They go to New England on the road. That's going to be a hard game, by the way, with a guy like Matthew Judon coming at him all game long. Let's throw out all the concussion talk out of the window. Let's toss that to the side for now. Let's say he's fully healthy in a hypothetical situation and they end up snatching the seven seed. This team could easily play the Chiefs or the Bills and beat them on their home field. At the end of the day... This team's ceiling is still crazy high, and we can't just let that fourth quarter that Tua had blind us from them making a little bit of a run in the postseason. And I think we can all agree here that a 7-seed Dolphins team is much more of a threat than a 7-seed Washington Commanders team on the NFC side of the bracket. Taking a look on the other side, though, it comes down to the Dolphins, the Patriots, and the Jets for that last spot in the AFC playoffs. And to be frank, I don't believe in the Patriots. I've been outspoken about Mac Jones on last episode. Unfortunately, I think Mac Jones has become a guy who a lot of people don't enjoy watching. I feel like he's making too many excuses on the field. His body language is pretty poor. And now all these videos are surfacing of how dirty of a player he's becoming. They just aren't built for the playoffs as of right now. That defense certainly is, but that offense really has no identity. Ramondre Stevenson has been struggling in recent weeks. We saw that fumble he had at the end of the game where they came all the way back against the Cincinnati Bengals. And that would be a team, along with a team like the Jets, who opposing teams would absolutely love to play in the first round of their matchups. The Jets especially, I mean, they're dead. They are dead. They are dead, dead, dead. There is no way they're coming back. Zach Wilson most likely is going to get the boot from New York. Do I think he's going to play football again? Yes, he's going to play football again. Let's pump the brakes on that too. I've been seeing a lot of outlandish comments about him on the Twitterverse over the last week or so. He was the number two overall pick at the end of the day. Sam Darnold got a second chance. Baker Mayfield has gotten second and third chances. He's going to get another chance. Some GM is going to talk themselves into taking Zach Wilson, but he's not going to be a New York Jet. A team that comes to mind real quickly, maybe the Colts. Maybe a better team. Maybe a contending team, and he can have a really good backup in mind. Who knows? It's just a mess up there, though. All three of these teams, the Dolphins, the Patriots, and the Jets, face off against one another in the next couple of weeks, so it's going to be interesting to see if one of these teams can get a win against Tua's diminished confidence, or if he's not able to play at all. Speaking earlier of the NFC, 
we're neglecting the Packers here. The Packers aren't going to the Super Bowl, right? Right? Right now, they sit at 7-8. and eight. That's the same record as the Seahawks and the Lions. The Commanders tie in their record. Gives them a little bit of a bump up. Coming in clutch for them down the stretch of the year. But I think they'll be done with that matchup versus Dallas in Week 18, who they never seem to beat. The Lions got absolutely dominated by my Carolina Panthers this Sunday. We're going to talk about them later. That was just an ass-kicking. And that's exactly what Dan Campbell said about the game, too. Then they have to go to Green Bay in Week 18 on the road, which isn't promising if you're a Lions fan. The Seahawks are finished. They can't buy a game to save their life, even when they warm up shirtless in negative-degree weather. So right now, I have to say the Packers will be in. And before this game, I said, no way. I mean, what the hell? No way. This team is dead. This team was dead, 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 dead in the water. Gone. There was no chance for them. Only three weeks ago, they were finished. I remember one of the first episodes of this podcast, one of the first episodes of the NFL season. I think it was week one. It was right after week one of the NFL. And I said, there's no way this team makes the playoffs. There is no way in hell that Aaron Rodgers is going to be able to find a way to will this team without a solidified top 20 receiver, without Devontae Adams, without a guy that he can rely on time and time again, especially in crunch time. If they're going to make it out into the NFC Championship game, that defense is going to have to be something fierce. And what do you know? Fast forward, we're sitting here at week 17, and Aaron Rodgers shot out the Dolphins in the second half and put up 16 points without Christian Watson. Literally a cast of Alan Lazard and Romeo Dubes, who are solid players, don't get me wrong. They've carried their load this season, especially in the previous weeks. But they aren't top 30 guys by any means. Top 40, sure. That's why when you look at this game closer, they're going to have to win games in the postseason if they make it off of other teams' mistakes. And if they do make the playoffs, guess which quarterback is most likely going to be awaiting them? Kirk Cousins. Primetime Kirk will be right there for them. And they play this weekend. That is a match made in heaven if you're a Packers fan. That's exactly who you want to play in round one of the NFC playoffs. They play this weekend. As I said, we're going to talk about that matchup later on with the betting segment. But the Packers are right there. And I'd be more afraid of them than a lot of other teams on that side of the bracket. Quick note, they're now 15-0 and in December with Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers on their side. And while we're on the topic of NFC seeding, let's talk about some takeaways from the Cowboys and Eagles game on Saturday. Great game. Great game. Everything you want to see and more. Both teams have wins over each other with their backup quarterbacks in. It was Cooper Rush in round one and then Gardner Minshew in round two. This is going to set up an epic playoff game. Those two games gave us a really good indication about how the trenches and other essential parts of their rosters match up against one another. And it's also just funny to watch all the interactions on social media between Philly fans and Cowboy fans because Cowboy fans, man, they were letting Eagles fans have it all post game. They were talking so much shit to each other. They were letting Eagles fans have it because Eagles fans were talking a lot of shit after their first matchup. And the same energy was absolutely applied right back at them <laughs> if you're a Cowboys fan. But the funny thing is the Cowboys fans were acting as they were the humble ones, which is just never the case. But whatever. The main attraction in this game was the battle between C.D. Lamb and Devontae Smith. I mean, wow. Both these guys are just incredible. They are so good at what they do. And before Dak Prescott had that interception caught by Josh Sweat, everyone thought to themselves, oh my God, here we go again. It's happening again. But he played flawless the rest of the game. Played flawlessly the rest of that game, especially throughout the rest of the first half. Like right after that mistake, he was just lights out. And what really pissed me off, even as an objective football fan, as someone who despises the Dallas Cowboys, was why did the Cowboys stop throwing the ball at the start of the second half? Like, throughout the third quarter, they went to the ground after Dak was cooking. I mean, dismantling the Eagles' secondary. Even after the first bad interception, I was thinking, like, it looks like Sirianni is just going to walk out of here out coaching Mike McCarthy and win this game, which is something that 
you know, tends to happen down the stretch of the year with McCarthy as head coach. That's not a surprise to Dallas fans. And all of a sudden, flips switch right back into the momentum. Thanks to the pass game, it returns for Dallas. They score twice to get them tied up. Smith and Lamb caught literally going back to them. Just I have to go back to them. They caught literally everything that came their way. Everything. It also made it 100 times more fun as an over 48 and a half better. Fireworks all over the field. C.D. Lamb, though. I have to make a formal apology. Forget about Devontae Smith. I've always been a fan of Devontae Smith. I always knew he was going to be great. Didn't care what the haters thought. C.D. Lamb. I'm here to make a formal apology to you because in week one, when Dak Prescott went down with a thumb injury, I questioned his ability to become a true number one guy on the Dallas Cowboys receiving core. I questioned that throughout the offseason as well with the departure of Amari Cooper to Cleveland. I was absolutely wrong. And shout out to Mauricio Rodriguez from A to Z Sports in Dallas, who I had on for an episode. And he told me to that question, yes, I absolutely do think he's going to be able to be a number one guy in this league. While there were some idiotic plays in the secondary of the Eagles that led to some miscommunication and you know pinchings, you got to give credit to Lamb. And also, also, how could we forget T.Y. Hilton? His first catch as a Dallas Cowboy was on a third and 30 conversion in the fourth quarter. Former pro bowler steps up to the table and, I mean, makes an impression right away. The best first impression you could finally, you could ever have. It was incredible to watch that happen right after the Devontae Smith touchdown celebration with him trying to be the Grinch. That was an all-timer. Um, this was the most entertaining game of the week by far. I also want to dive into the Eagles here some. I thought Gardner Minshew played well despite those turnovers, of course, but you know he really brought it to the Dallas defense. I think we could have all guessed that a couple of miscues would have happened here and there in a big game like that in a tough environment against a really good defense. I think the loss has to fall on the Eagles' secondary, not on Gardner Minshew, not on him. And I never thought... To this point, a game could be blamed or put on the shoulders of Darius Slay. But this time, it, it kind of happened. It kind of happened. You just have to be honest and watch the tape and admit to it. But looking forward, the Eagles need to get healthy. But performances from Devontae Smith, A.J. Brown, amazing stuff what they're doing. They both have 1,000 yards on the season. It doesn't matter, though, because despite all what happened in this game, The 49ers have officially climbed to the number one team in the entire league in my eyes. Definitely in the NFC. Just based on, solely based on, you know, their health status. And of course, their defense led by Nick Bosa. He's scarier to me than Parsons or Jordan Davis, who Jordan Davis was injured in this game against Dallas. Hopefully he's going to be back for them. That's another essential piece that needs to be back for that interior line. But despite that, this game had no outcome on seeding. The Eagles have a gimme game against the Saints this week. They're going to have to win that game. I think they will win that game with ease, even without some of those key pieces. And the Cowboys are going to have, I mean, just a field day against the Tennessee Titans offensive line and Malik Willis. They're struggling beyond more than any team, I think, in the NFL right now. I think their playoff hopes are done, even though they have a date with the Jaguars in Week 18. It's going to be a slaughterhouse on Thursday night. Something a little more entertaining than the mismatches of the Eagles and the Cowboys opponents this weekend is the dumpster fire of the Denver Broncos. The Broncos announced Monday that they have fired head coach Nathaniel Hackett after a 4-11 record and getting 50-burgered by Baker Mayfield and the Rams. What made it even worse was that it was the NFL Nickelodeon game where Patrick Starr was just trolling Russell Wilson the entire game Just the worst possible way to go out, but just the funniest way to go out at the same time. Jokes aside, there needs to be a conversation of this coaching and quarterback combo being one of the worst executive decisions in the history of the NFL. And I know I can overreact sometimes, but that was just an atrocious pairing. It created so much drama over the offseason in terms of excitement. Like everyone, and I mean everyone, was so excited for Russell Wilson to be in a Broncos uniform for him to finally get a chance away from Pete Carroll and see what he can do calling the shots. That has been the discussion throughout the last three seasons. 
Everybody who watched the Broncos and every NFL Sunday, every Sunday on Red Zone, and after every game they played, media would say, man, if this team just had an elite quarterback, they would be a threat to make it all the way to the Super Bowl. And everybody's thinking in their minds, is it going to be Aaron Rodgers? Is it going to be Russell Wilson? And when the news broke with Russell Wilson, a guy who was an MVP candidate only two seasons ago, and people forget that the Seahawks were a 12 win team in 2020 when Russell Wilson was considered a top five quarterback to a lot of people out there. This was the biggest cliff I've ever seen in the shortest amount of time from any player in any professional sports league basketball, football, hockey, cricket, croquet. I don't care what the sport is. This was beyond anything I've ever witnessed in my life. His 82.6 QBR rating is the worst of his career. His last four seasons goes as follows. 106.3, 105.1, 103.1, and 82.6. And the 103.1 in 2020, or 2021 rather, was the second lowest of his career. So he drops 20 points in QBR in one year. What makes this entire scenario awful is the fact that the Denver Broncos literally extended Russ to a massive contract before he even played a snap with them, which alludes to this point. The Broncos had to scapegoat Nathaniel Hackett because they can't fire Russell Wilson. This is pretty much them saying, damn, I really wish we had gotten Aaron Rodgers. Really wish we had gotten him instead. Because while Rodgers had a tough start, to click with his young guys this year in Green Bay, he did it better than anyone could have done it. Anybody. Even Tom Brady in Tampa Bay had some familiar faces on his wideouts. You know, Mike Evans, those those kind of guys. Aaron Rodgers literally had nobody. And while, yes, it took a while for him to get it, get the bus moving a little bit, he figured it out. I don't think anyone else could have done that in his spot. And you can guarantee that Jerry Judy, Corlin Sutton, Those guys would be putting up numbers right now if Aaron Rodgers were on that team. Book it. Book that. All the way. As for Nathaniel Hackett, he becomes just the fourth coach ever to be fired before the end of his first season as head coach. The last one was Urban Meyer. I think everybody can remember what happened there. Who, yeah, was a horrible coach. Took the Jaguars to an awful record. But it was because he was a scumbag. Hackett just sucked at his job. And he could never decide what to do in tense scenarios. For instance, let's go all the way back to week one. We keep going back to week one of the season in this episode, but it's important because remember the decision he made against the Seahawks to kick a 64-yard field goal at the end of the game instead of letting Russ call his own fourth down play. Cost it in the game. In that moment, as soon as the field goal was missed, the Broncos' front office all looked at each other with side eyes in that moment. They all looked at each other with second guesses. The trust between Russ and Hackett was over. His confidence was destroyed, and the contract meant absolutely nothing. The millions and millions of dollars that you give to somebody to convert a play like that, you let a kicker put the fate of your entire career at stake. And to be clear, I thought Russ was much worse than Hackett. And he should be the one getting punished. But that connection was done for a long time. And when you're the leader and a captain of a team and your own coach doesn't have trust in you, that trickles down like nothing else in the locker room. And the belief inside that locker room is diminished. It's gone. It's in thin air. The same thing happened with Matt Rule in Carolina. And now the Panthers could be making the playoffs. But listen here, I'm not giving up on Russ. You know, people bash him all the time. And I could be put on old takes exposed after muttering these words. But something doesn't sit right with me based on those numbers of the past. When you're one of the best in the game for years, years and years and years, the repetition's there, the leadership's there, the efficiency is there, the accolades are there. You just don't make boneheaded choices like that on the field out of randomness. His spirit was shot on the field. There is something up with his confidence. And someone who can come in and fix all that is a guy like Sean Payton. Yes, Sean Payton. I think right now 
He's one of the few guys that can do it. Think about it this way. Drew Brees and Russ have very similar tendencies and play styles. Same frame, same build, same demeanor, same leadership qualities. I think that would be the best possible situation for Russell Wilson and this Denver Broncos team. And don't call me crazy, but that's not a job that people would be scared of taking. You have a lost quarterback with world-class potential. He's not a young guy. He's a proven star. There's weapons all across the board that can blossom with help. Javante Williams will be back next year after getting injured. And the defense has been stout throughout the entirety of the season, even after losing Bradley Chubb in a trade to Miami. It's not like you're starting from scratch. You have all the tools that need to be put to place. You just need to fix all of the chemistry. You just have to go up there and fix it all. You have to glue everyone together. You have to say, forget about last year. This is what we're doing this year. I went with the Kendall Roy analogy last time on last week's episode to describe Mike McDaniel. Russell Wilson right now is like Vincent Chase from Entourage after they made Medellin. A proven star that is in football jail for a, for a horrific flop of the 2022 season, but ultimately won't define his career after a comeback story. I don't think we've seen the last of him. They'll be back. All right, everyone, you have now entered my office. Step right in. I have a slew of NFL and bowl games for college that I want to break down for you and give the best bets for. And we're going to start with the NFC South showdown, Panthers at Buccaneers for the division title and for the right to be the worst team in the playoffs. This isn't the Panthers' first rodeo either. They made the playoffs numerous times with a terrible record, most notably in 2014 when they actually won their first playoff game. I'm so excited for this game. And it's already too late for me as a fan. I've done some late-night thinking. You know, the racing thoughts late at night have gotten to my brain. I've already convinced myself that the Panthers are winning this weekend, and they're going to host a, a playoff game in Bank of America Stadium and beat the Dallas Cowboys in the first round of the wild card playoffs. Don't let me get hot though, team. Don't let me get hot. I need to get I need to get back on track here with the game this week. Don't let me get too ahead of myself. The Panthers coming off a dominating win over the Lions. Quick note on that game because you absolutely have to mention this for sure. The Carolina Panthers in week 15 against the Steelers had a grand total of 21 rushing yards against their run defense, who the Steelers' run defense is last in the league, dead last, 21 yards against the worst run defense in the league. This week against the Lions, they had 203 yards in the first half. And just the roller coaster continues. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Sam Darnold is making plays that I've never seen him make before. The bad news for the Panthers, though, which is really, really just hurts the squad defensively for sure, J.C. Horn will be out probably the rest of the year with a broken wrist, but but they go out and sign Josh Norman, our king, our savior, Josh Norman, Carolina legend to the squad. I'm just praying that Mike Evans continues to not be a threat in the red zone because that matchup could get ugly. He's also only signed to the practice squad, so we have no idea if he's going to be ready to go or not, but that would be electric to see him out on the field. He would have a huge warm welcome back in Charlotte. The Buccaneers in this game, let's get into it. They open as three-point favorites over the Panthers at home. The Bucs might be the most underwhelming team in the league right now, and they are the worst team against the spread this year in the NFL with a 3-11-1 record. They have one win all year against a team over 500, and that was week one against Dallas. Their last four wins have been, have been late comebacks in the fourth quarter, which is encouraging to a certain point. But those are against the Rams, the Saints, and the Cardinals, who are all, in my opinion, worse than the Panthers at this point in time. Maybe you could say the Rams are on the same level with Baker installed, but either way, and that's kind of ironic, but either way, this is my stance. The Panthers are playing better football right now. They are the better team right now. They are the more exciting team to watch right now. And every single podcast and sports talk show I've listened to so far this week People are saying they would rather see the Panthers in the playoffs over the Buccaneers because they're the better team, not because they spite Tom Brady, not because they're sick of watching the Buccaneers in the playoffs, but you see the one factor on the other side, and that's Tom Brady. 
as long as these late wins continue, they could absolutely pull one out that they don't deserve to win, like they've been doing all season long, and they could do it in the playoffs. But I think that ends here. We're going Panthers plus three for my pick. The line actually opened at minus five and a half in favor of the Bucks, so it's dropped to three in a few days' time, which is very encouraging for for people out there who like the Panthers this weekend. I think that's a sign. Of course, my inner self is saying you're such an idiot for placing a bet against Tom Brady late in the year. But guess what? I picked them so many times this year. I've tried to ride with them all year long, and I never learned my lesson because it's simple. This team isn't good. The Buccaneers are not good. The Panthers are going to cover this game just like they did last week, which is through the run game of Chuba Hubbard and Deontay Foreman. Two guys that are some of the most underrated backfield runners in the entire league. James Conner was the sole reason for the Cardinals' success against Tampa on Sunday night. Their defense is broken up in the trenches, and Carolina's offensive line should get the most improved offensive line award this year compared to where they were in Week 1. I mean, it's crazy the steps that they've taken. They're creating holes and giving Darnold more time to make plays. DJ Moore is finally coming out of his shell for you fantasy players out there, just in time to go up against a struggling Tampa Bay secondary. He only has a few turnovers on the year. The only thing that scares me, and I said it earlier, is the absence of J.C. Horn, who has been Carolina's anchor all season long. But the thing that gives me a counter of hope is Tampa's red zone efficiency all year long. They are atrocious in the red zone. Their opportunities this year have been minuscule which is a head-scratcher to me because over the last couple of years prior, especially that year they won the Super Bowl, Mike Evans was the number one red zone threat in the league over some of the best wideouts in the entire NFL. As we know, the, the league is just stacked with top receivers, top to bottom. He might be coming for revenge after that drop pass with no coverage earlier in the year, if you can remember that, in Charlotte. As for now, we're going Panthers plus three for the division. The next pick involves an NFC North matchup. I cannot wait for this game. Vikings at Packers, afternoon slate. So good news for Kirk Cousins and the Vikings. The Packers are three-point favorites at home. One of the most interesting lines of the year, with the Vikings having five more wins in Green Bay on their record. But it comes down to how the Packers are playing at this moment, like we discussed in the Miami game. And it honestly makes total sense why the line is this way. The Vikings have been underdogs in several games this season, including including their week one game that the Vikings ran away with. The Packers are a completely different team. Their offensive line has opened up for Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. And a quick note about Aaron Jones, I saw this on Twitter. In terms of rushing yards over expected EPA between 2008 and 2022, Aaron Jones is first. He obtains half a yard more than expected on every single run, which is substantial in the grand scheme of things throughout his entire career. That's nuts. The Vikings' defense has has been their question mark all year long. And with the growing chemistry of the Packers' receivers and Aaron Rodgers, hopefully Christian Watson is okay for their sake, I'm taking Packers minus three. That's the pick here. Packers minus three is the pick with utter confidence. I feel way too good about this pick. And listen. They're rolling right now, whether you like it or not, whether you like Aaron Rodgers or not, whether you're sick of his shit or not. Vikings fans are enjoying the ride. They've already clinched the NFC North. This game means nothing to them. They'll be a top seed in the playoffs. The Packers at the end of the day have way more to play for in this game. Way more. In terms of logistics that stand out to me comparing the Packers defense to the Vikings arsenal offensively, if we're going to look at the schematics of this game, The Packers' run defense is their worst hole. And honestly, Dalvin Cook really hasn't been a threat at the end of the year and really all year long. There hasn't been that one Dalvin Cook game that we're used to seeing every so often. They've been sticking to their main targets. They've been sticking to their guns, and rightfully so, with Justin Jefferson, uh, K.J. Osborne, Adam Thielen. Justin Jefferson, by the way, needs some MVP hype because he's absolutely the reason that they're in the spot they're in right now. The way the Packers' secondary showed up in the second half on Sunday, despite those despite those explosive plays in the first, though, guys like Jair Alexander anchoring them together, that's a very promising sign. And I think they're going to give Jefferson a tougher task than he's used to. That doesn't mean he's going to get shut down completely. He's one of the best, if not the best receiver in the league. He's going to make plays. But his production is going to be lower than we're used to seeing based on my instincts. But the biggest takeaway from this 
is all about the gut feeling of are the Vikings good against quality opponents? And the answer, honestly, is unknown. Despite beating the Bills, that's their best quality win, but they also got extremely lucky in that game. And I don't like to pull that card, but the Bills really lost themselves in that game to let them back in. There were so many miscues and unfortunate situations that didn't go their way. There are other matchups, if you want to look at these against quality teams, were the Eagles and the Cowboys. And those, of course, did not end did not end well. They were blowouts. That loss against the Lions was a tough look, too. I think at this moment, Green Bay has climbed up to a quality team. And that's why I feel confident in them at home this weekend against Minnesota. The pick is in. It's Green Bay minus three. Final NFL game. It's Monday Night Football. Bills at Bengals. Buckle up for this one. The Bengals are home underdogs. The Bills are favored by one and a half points. This is a potential preview of the AFC Championship game. I think it would be electric if that came true. To me, I feel like this line is going to shift in the Bengals' favor by the time Monday rolls around. And I feel as if the Bengals should be favored in this game with their seven-game win streak in hand. They haven't lost a game in two months thanks to their explosive offense that they altered in Week 5 to propel them on this track. And during that time, Jamar Chase was out with injury for a few weeks. So it's even more impressive with the fact that they're on this win streak right now. That shows you, though, the depth of their receiving core, and I've talked about it time and time again. T. Higgins would be a number one guy on almost any other team. They are an elite offense and could do some damage to a Bills defense that, in my eyes, has taken a step back in assertiveness with Von Miller out. And, you know, that's hard to do when a big guy, a a big pass rush guy with that sort of name is out of your lineup. Joe Burrow is a guy who suffers under pressure, and you can recall that from his rookie year in which they had no offensive line. I still think the Bills' offense is neck and neck with the Bengals, and you can make the argument that they're better overall. I'd probably even lean that way with Josh Allen, and the reason the Bills are favored in this game is because the Bengals' defense is slightly banged up. But for me, it comes down to who shows more vulnerability on defense right now. And the Bills have more question marks with pass with the pass rush missing Von Miller and second and a secondary unit that's still banged up and has been pretty much all season long. So I'm going to go with the home underdogs, Bengals plus one and a half. Book it now while you still have that line. I would not be shocked at all if it moves to one or a pick em by Monday. Right now, the Bengals have a slightly calculated advantage with the edge of 1.3% over the Bills with that line. The confidence level is relatively high by sports books. And we're actually going to double dip in this game. So we're going to have two picks. We're going to go Bengals plus one and a half. And we're going to take the over 49 and a half of points. I mean, come on. It's the final Monday night game of the regular season. All the Monday night games have been absolute snooze fests. Both of these defenses are going up against juggernauts. And I don't think either side is going to be ready for it. Both Burrow and Allen are going to bring their best in the bright lights. And that's how they operate. Who doesn't want to watch some fireworks happen in this game? The thing that really gives me confidence, though, despite those two juggernauts, is the Bills are fourth in the league in average scoring with 28 points per game, and the Bengals are sixth with 26.1 points per game. And in their last three, the Bills have averaged 29 points per match. And the Bengals at home have averaged 29 points at home. So take your pick. Submit it now. We're going to go Bengals plus one and a half and the over of 49 and a half points. Now let's transition to college football. Man, I'm excited for these games. I have several games here that I want to give bets for, and we'll start with a good one. It's Notre Dame and South Carolina, two eight and four squads who finished who finished their season strong. Definitely on a high note from where they started out. This game is going to be played on Friday in Jacksonville, Florida. Fighting Irish are two and a half point favorites over the Gamecocks. We're going to be riding South Carolina in this game. I'm going South Carolina plus two and a half. They became one of my favorite teams to watch down the stretch of the season, and it's because of one man. And his name is Shane Beamer, who's becoming the truth. I love this guy. I think what he's doing to turn this program around is amazing. They started out the season putting up a measly 16 points against Georgia State at home. And then by the end of the year, they were putting up 30 plus points against Clemson and a 60 bomb on Tennessee. Just unreal what they were able to do schematically and totally alter and shift that offensive unit. It's just insane. I've never seen anything like it. As for Notre Dame. I still have no idea why this team was ranked in the top five in the preseason. After betting on them against USC at the end of the year, I'm never doing it again. That's I felt like a complete idiot watching them try to stop Caleb Williams. And South Carolina is led by Spencer Rattler, who's just as an explosive player 
as Williams was in the last couple of contests. And it's only fitting because South Carolina has been known for those explosive plays. And Notre Dame ranks 120th in explosive plays allowed. Not to mention the Fighting Irish will be without their number one weapon on offense, Michael Mayer, who's a terrific tight end. So they'll be going rush heavy with a very average run game in the backfield. I'm quite confused, honestly, with those opt-outs that Notre Dame has, why they're favored in this matchup. I think a lot of it has to do with their name and their brand, with them being named Notre Dame, of course. If this same team were on paper and they were Purdue, South Carolina would be favored by a few points. We're going to go South Carolina plus two and a half. Book it. Next one is the Orange Bowl. We have Tennessee and Clemson. Clemson favored in this one, minus four and a half. I think it's actually bumped out, bumped up to minus five and a half and on some books. This one is pretty easy. These are two teams that are in two different modes, two different mindsets for sure. The Vols are in a state of disappointment because they know they missed out on the opportunity of the college football playoff. And without Hendon Hooker, their backup quarterback, Joe Bilton, has been hard to get production out of. Definitely to the level of where Hooker was at. I don't even know if that's possible by any backup in the country. But the Vols also have opt-outs and wide receiver Cedric Tillman, who won't be playing after declaring for the NFL draft. And same with their other breakout star receiver, Jalen Hyatt. So there's three of their best players out of the window. No Jalen Hyatt, no Cedric Tillman, no Hendon Hooker. Those three guys were the backbone of their, of their season. I know Cedric Tillman came in a little bit later off the injury, but I just don't see how you can play up for this game after losing those guys or fill in talent with a few weeks to play and practice against a team like Clemson, who has found new life in quarterback Caleb Klubnick. DJ Uyungle is off to Oregon State. He transferred this week, so he's out of the picture. Klubnick is the future of this Clemson team. This kid is going to be their next great quarterback. He's going to be up there with the Deshaun Watsons, with the Trevor Lawrences. He looks fantastic, and I wouldn't be shocked at all if we see Clemson back in the college football playoff next year because of this guy. This is a game for them where they want to carry over confidence and momentum into training camp in the spring and into next fall. I think Dabo is going to have his guys up to play for this game. This game means something to them. You could just tell in the way they've been practicing, the way they've been responding to media press conferences all week. You also have Will Shipley, who's a great weapon for them. He's been been a workhorse on their offense all year long, has always been reliable, and a pretty stout secondary unit who can lock it down for you in terms of big plays. We're going to go Clemson, minus 4.5, willing to go up to minus 5.5 if that's what you have on your book. The line actually opened at minus 6.5, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe the odds makers think this game is going to be closer than we actually anticipate. But I feel confident with the Tigers here. Minus 4.5 is the pick. Bump it up to 5.5 if you need to. Keeping it moving, next we have Alabama and Kansas State, the Big 12 champion. They had an incredible season. This line opened at minus 4 in favor of Alabama about a month ago, but is now minus 6.5 in favor of the Crimson Tide after Will Anderson and Bryce Young announced that they'll be playing in the Sugar Bowl. Just something you love to see, obviously, as an Alabama fan, getting to send your guys off the right way, but also just as a college football fan, with all these new NIL deals, the new picture of college football and the NFL draft projections and the opt-outs, it just makes you think about how important bowls used to be. Ten years ago, it wouldn't even be in question if your star players were going to suit up for the Sugar Bowl. Now nobody wants to play in these games at all. That used to be a huge recruiting tool to be able to say your program won a New Year's Six Bowl against a team that's also recruiting you as well. Now it's all about the playoff. You guys know where I'm going with this pick, though. We're going Alabama, minus 6.5, and and I'm predicting a beatdown. I think these players know what's at stake. They feel disrespected, and this is a perfect test to go up against a team that defeated TCU in their championship in their championship game. Break them down, get people to say, yeah, maybe we should have considered Alabama a little bit more for the playoff. I'm not saying they should have been in. I'm just saying it's a great opportunity for a team that's hungry and needs to prove itself. And it looks like they're having fun out in New Orleans, practicing in the Superdome. Saban has a very light mood to him. The, the players seem ready to go. I have a good feeling about this game for the Crimson Tide. While I'm saying this all as a diehard Alabama football fan, it actually makes sense schematically in terms of the analysis of the game that's going to be played. Kansas State is one of the worst Power 5 conference teams in the country 
on their rush defense. And someone please remind me who Alabama lean on all year long for offensive production. That's right. Numero uno, Jameer Gibbs, the best running back in the country, a.k.a. Alvin Kamara 2.0. And his type of ability has never been seen from big, from a Big 12 defense like Kansas State. Their biggest test, Kansas State's biggest test, Kansas State's biggest test was against a guy in B. John Robinson out of Texas who is absolutely a stud himself. But Jameer can put you down and hurt you in so many different ways. Robinson is a power back. He just runs the ball with strength. Jameer is crafty and quick in the holes, and he can burn you in the hashes in the receiving slot as well. I'm really hoping that he will contribute. I think he is going to contribute in a big way, but it would be really, really nice to see a guy like Isaiah Bond or maybe even a guy like Ja'Cory Brooks have a nice day as well on the receiving side. The receiving core of the Crimson Tide is no secret, really needs to find some identity, and it would be really, really awesome to see one of those guys step up and have some confidence heading into training camp and heading into next fall. Maybe even a new guy that we have no idea about that's opted in. Just maybe Saban says, hey, go out there. You're a young guy. Let's see what you got. I'm really excited for this game. We're going Bama minus six and a half. Time for the playoff games. We start with TCU and Michigan. Game being played in Arizona. Michigan are seven and a half point favorites. It's a pretty disrespectful line, in my opinion, for a 2v3 matchup in the college football playoff. Those are just my initial thoughts right off the bat. I mean, I guess you can say that Michigan has showed up all year long and they're in the Big Ten. They've been pretty dominant against everyone they've played except for that game. That was pretty close against Illinois a couple months ago, but still comes as a little bit of a surprise to me. Listen, this is how I view this game. Michigan is the better team. There's no doubt about that. They have a lot of confidence with them right now, and perhaps TCU is just happy to be there. In terms of the matchup, the Michigan defense is in a good spot based on analytics. They have a top 10 success rate versus a TCU offense that all season long has relied on explosive plays in the air or in the backfield creating gaps within the trenches of their offensive line. But that those are Big 12 defensive lines we're talking about here. I thought the Big 12 was pretty underwhelming this season. That's no surprise. And Michigan is actually 16th defensively in rush and pass expected points. So TCU is going to have to find ways to expose their holes or they'll, or they'll have to buoy them in the trenches and grind them out over the course of the game. Michigan is also the better third down team on both sides of the ball, which is important when you look at TCU's red zone efficiency throughout the year. It's not been great. It's been a very weak point of theirs. And it's funny, I just said a lot of their plays resulting in touchdowns were never even inside the red zone. They had these big plays that were just created on their side of the field. So again, to me, that shows you the kinds of defenses that they were going up against every week throughout conference play. But with all that being said, you know what matters more than all of these analytics? It's belief. And I think TCU and Max Duggan, they've got grit. They've got something that they've been using all year long, and that is their belief in themselves. I think they're going to come out of this game ready to play with nothing to lose. They are the underdog. They know it. I believe it's going to be closer than people think. They found a way all year long to do it. I don't think we can throw that out of the window despite Michigan being the more talented and the more physical team head to toe. No doubt about it. You can't argue that. The pick is in. We're going TCU plus 7.5 just because that spread is too disrespectful in my, in my eyes. It just is. That doesn't mean I think TCU will win, but I think it'll be a 3-5 to five point contest. And that extra half point in the 7 gives you an incentive to take their spread. Because Michigan could win by a touchdown by 7, and you're going to be feeling sorry for yourself that you didn't take the TCU spread. So the pick is in. TCU plus 7.5. All right, last one, ladies and gentlemen. Last one of the day. And I saved it for last because this is officially my game of the year. No, my game of the century. No, no. Wait, this is my millennial game. And if I don't get this one right, I will highly consider my betting strategies from here on out. It's Ohio State and Georgia and Atlanta. Georgia's favored minus six and a half in this one. My pick for my millennial game is Georgia minus six and a half. I have not felt this confident about pick in my entire betting career, my young betting career. Just don't overthink it. Just don't overthink it. And I could sound like a total idiot here. Don't overthink it. Stick to your gut. Think about it this way. This Georgia team is one of the most dominant teams a lot of people have ever seen. And last year's team comes to mind for sure. 
But this team is honestly right up there. They are right up there. Throw out the people who say, what about the Missouri game? What about the Kent State game? Yeah, roger that. I care more about what they did against Oregon, against Tennessee, against LSU, and against Florida. They demolished their best opponents, and two of those games were inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is where they're going to be playing for this game. It's essentially a home game for them. It is. Now look at it in terms of the matchup. The Ohio State-Michigan game is the only point of interest you need to observe from the Buckeye season. The Ohio State secondary is in total disarray, total question after missed assignments throughout that second half of, of the Michigan game, especially in the fourth quarter. They went to a covered zero and got exposed in so many ways. I don't know how they're going to recover from that from a confidence standpoint. How do you think Brock Bowers is going to enjoy that sort of coverage? Every single team that has never played against Brock Bowers, they get, they get demolished by them in their first outing against him. I mean, it's just inevitable. That he's going to have at least, I mean, at least 75 yards and a touchdown at minimum. And this guy, Lad McConkey, he is, and I'm shaking my head while I'm talking about him, like, he is like a Hunter Renfro at Clemson. He always seems to be open. He's such a slippery little guy. He gets past people for five yards after after contact. It's just crazy. And when you look at Ohio State, I mean... Yeah, they have a terrific quarterback in C.J. Stroud, and he's going to have some time to drop back in the pocket because Georgia's pass rush, while their defense is really good, that pass rush really isn't that explosive. They're just really good at slowing you down the field. Their coverage scheme is locked down. They don't let anything over the top, and their linebackers are elite. They don't mess around with guys like Jalen Carter. They don't mess around with you. Against great teams on their schedule, they've given up an average of 15 points. And that includes a Hendon Hooker-led team like Tennessee that was putting up 100 points a game. And I think we can use that game as a total measuring stick because throughout the season, Ohio State and Tennessee were pretty comparable on both sides of the ball throughout the majority of the year. Not to mention everyone remembers what happened last season when Michigan met Georgia in the semifinal. That did not end well for Michigan fans or for Big Ten supporters. After every game like this, Everybody just says to themselves, well, damn, I really thought the SEC champion would be different this time around. I really thought we could do it. Our pick is in UGA minus six and a half. All right, guys, that is all for this episode of On the DL podcast. I hope everyone enjoys their weekend full of NFL football and bowl games. We have some big guests lined up for upcoming weeks, so make sure you guys tune in for that. Reach out to me on your social pages if you want to follow some other wagers or ideas that you have or just general sports talk. Share this episode with your friends and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode.